in order to answer these three questions, I've combined them, okay? As we left off last time, I mentioned that we would talk about the difference between the ceremonial law and the moral law because we touched a little bit on it last time. So what I'm going to try to do is cover a very intense uh, subject as quickly as I can. That's why I put it on the board. Can you all see it back there? Okay. The question is, what is sin? Actually, there are several definitions of sin. If you know to do right and you don't do it, that's sin. Okay. There's the sin of omission and the sin of commission. If, if I shoot you, that's the sin of commission. If, if you are on the waterfront and somebody's drowning and you have a life preserver beside you and you could throw that out and save a person, but you don't, that's the sin of omission. You omitted doing what was good, you see. But what does the scripture specifically say is sin? In Romans 3.20, Paul says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then in 1 John 3.4, it says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. If, if you uh, go speeding down the highway, and it's illegal to go at the speed you're going, you are transgressing. You are committing a sin as far as the government's concerned. And so we find that it says the knowledge of sin. If there is no law, there is no sin. That's why the devil tries to tell people that the law has been done away with. If the law has been done away with, then so has sin, you see. And that's contrary to uh, the Word of God. The very fact that the law exists tells us that sin exists. Now, the question is, what law? You know, there's various kinds of doctors. There are dentists, there's psychiatrists, there's all kinds of physicians. There's a doctor of education, mathematics, zoology, etc. Okay? They're all doctors. But even in medicine, if you have a toothache... You don't want to go to a psychiatrist, right? Unless you imagine you have a toothache. Then you might want to go, okay? But you see, they each have a different purpose and a different function and expertise. We find that even lawyers, secular law, a lawyer can be a criminal lawyer. He could be a divorce lawyer. He could be a constitutional or a corporate lawyer or civil law but they're all lawyers. So the word lawyer, the word doctor, is a generic term covering a multitude of things. When we talk about the law in the Scriptures, in the Bible there are actually various types of law. And we need to keep that in mind. For instance, there's natural law. This is cause and effect. And it's, you'll usually find the word if in there somewhere. If you do this, this is the result that will happen. If you want to jump off the Empire State Building, be my guest. But the landing might be a little rough, right? So you're running into a moral law. Is that still in effect? I think so. 
I haven't seen too many people jump off lately, but last I knew it, it was. Now you could say, oh well, the law of gravity is done away with. You can say all the way down, you can say law of gravity is done away with. But that doesn't mean it's true, you see. It still applies. There's a second kind, a health law. We're going to touch on some of that later. If, you know, the Bible is very, um, very specific about health laws and hygiene. And you are to wash after you go to the bathroom. After, when you're about to eat, you used to wash your hands, you see. And there's also some, some food laws we can talk about later, too. And hygiene, these are still in effect today. Some people say, well, that only applied to the Jews. How is a Jew's stomach any different from a Gentile stomach? If, if a Jew eats high fat and a Gentile eats high fat, they're both going to get heart attack, right? So we find that that is still in effect. Civil law. In the scriptures, it talks about, you know, they had a theocracy. And there were certain laws that related to the way they ruled and governed, even agricultural laws. Those, because it is no longer a theocracy, this no longer has a king, those laws are obsolete. There are many obsolete laws in America today. Do you know in some states, I forget which one, but I think it's Indiana, I'm not sure, it's illegal to carry an ice cream cone in your pocket. In, I think it's Kentucky, it's illegal to whistle underwater. You see, there must have been a reason for that. If you go into Detroit or Boston with an automobile, you have to have someone go ahead of you uh, warning the people to tie up the horses when you come into town. How many of you have done that lately, you see? Those are obsolete laws, but they were civil laws that served a purpose and have passed away. The two we're concerned about are the religious laws and the moral laws. When we say religious laws, these are the ones that relate to the ceremonies that took place. I'm going to touch on that again in a minute. And the priesthood. Who could be a priest and who couldn't? Okay? According to the uh, scriptures, the tribe of Levi was supposed to be the priestly tribe. But yet it says Jesus is our high priest. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. So either you have to change his heritage or you have to change the law as to who becomes a priest, you see. And then there's the moral law of Ten Commandments. Now, if these become obsolete, and even this has been changed, there are those who want to change this too. And that's where you start running into trouble. Let's, if the law, moral law could be changed, then before you leave, we will collect your wallets on the way out. Right? I mean, if, if it's no longer wrong to, to steal, why, you can see the problems you'd run into. All right, so some of these laws have changed. Look in Hebrews 7.12. 
it specifically says that for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law pertaining to priesthood. It doesn't say about the Ten Commandments, but that which applies to the priesthood. Because Jesus came from the wrong side of the tracks. You see, he was not from the tribe of Levi. And yet, when he ascended and went back to heaven, he went back to become our high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. Notice also, and Hebrews 8.13 was written before the year 70 A.D. Now, 70 A.D. is when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem by the Romans. This was written before that time. How do we know? It says, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. That pertaining to the, the temple is now obsolete. How, that's supposed to be now. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It hasn't completely vanished away, but it's ready to vanish away. Okay? The temple will be destroyed in 70 AD, which is a part of the ceremonial law. Where did they offer the sacrifices? In the temple. Okay. And then in Hebrews 9, 1 and 10, it says... Then indeed, even the first covenant had what? Ordinances, those are ceremonies, of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. The Lord himself is applying his blood in our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary that the Bible speaks about. On earth, they applied blood in the earthly sanctuary. So there were parallels concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, until the Messiah came along and fulfilled these. Now, when it's talking about food and drink, it's not saying that um, the Lord has made, has changed. People who drink alcohol are still going to get drunk. That's not what it's referring to. What it's referring to is food offerings and drink offerings. They had ceremonies where they would, they would have food offerings and drink offerings. They would also have to wash in a certain way before they offered them. And so this is what it's referring to. So there were some changes that had to be made, but it was not the moral law. It was the ceremonial law. If you had one chapter in the Bible that outlines the whole plan of salvation in the Old Testament, it's Leviticus 23. And a lot of people, in looking at Leviticus 23, come up with some different interpretations of what that really means. But look at Leviticus 23, because you will find that the word Sabbath is used all through there. But people don't realize there are two different types of Sabbaths that are mentioned in there. All the word Sabbath means is you don't do your ordinary work. You rest from your work, your labors. Some of them use the word convocation. Convocation means you all come together for a meeting. When you go to church, you're going to a convocation. You see, you meet together. Okay, so it mentions that there are Sabbaths, different kinds of Sabbaths. 
If you've got your Bibles, you can open to Leviticus 23, and you'll see immediately the difference. The only reason why the creation Sabbath is even in there, in that chapter, is because of the word Sabbath. He's simply telling you, these are the days I don't want you working. Okay? But look at this. You will see in verses 1 through 3, it talks about the Sabbath of creation. And then it's, it says uh, in verse 4, it starts talking about the ceremonial Sabbaths. The word ceremonial Sabbaths, I don't like to use that because it's so misunderstood by people today. But if you look at this, the first three verses point backward to creation. You see? They point backward. Creation's already happened. They're identifying who the creator is. Now, the interesting thing is that the creation Sabbath comes weekly. The rest of them come yearly. Okay? We also find <clears throat> that it's very interesting. We, we have our year based on an astronomical event, right? The earth goes around the sun. That is one year. We have the moon going around the earth and that is called a, a month, right? It comes from the word moon, month. Every month, there's 12 months in the year because the moon is going around the earth. They are based around astronomical events. But you know, there is nothing in astronomy that explains the seven-day weekly cycle. The only... The only uh, the only way you can know where we got a seven-day week from is the scriptures. During the French Revolution, they tried to go to a 10-day week. And men and animals were breaking down. They had to go back to a seven-day week. Do you think God might have known something that we maybe didn't know? The way we're, we're built is on a weekly cycle. It's to remind us how we got here. Who's the one that put us here? Who's the boss? The God of creation. Now, the second part, I like to call them the messianic Sabbaths. These are an outline of the work that the Messiah would do. And it's interesting that Jesus fulfilled every one of these. Let's look at them. First off, Passover is mentioned in verses 4 and 5. At the Passover, what was the chief focus? It was the lamb, right? The lamb that was put to death, the sacrifice. And he was our substitute. That lamb died where we should have died. He died for our sin symbolizing Jesus who would give his life for your sins and mine. Okay? Then came unleavened bread. Easter is just a little while ago. 
When do people usually remember the death of Jesus? What's the day called? Good Friday, right? And theoretically, you're supposed to be quiet between 12 and 3. Why? Because that's when Jesus was hanging on the cross. So he died about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Isn't it interesting that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when they would offer the evening sacrifice in the temple? And when Jesus died, the priest was about ready to slaughter that animal when all of a sudden the curtain in the temple ripped from top to bottom. That thing, 10 or 15 feet high, and it was real thick. It was more than a human. If a human ripped it, they'd rip it from the bottom up. And they could see into the most holy place of the temple. And the temple became obsolete. And the lamb ran away, by the way, it tells us. So Jesus died on the Passover. Now, we know the scripture tells us on the first day of the week, he resurrected. But it doesn't tell you what happened in between. You see, this happens on one day. This is the very next day. This is the unleavened bread. What do you do with bread when you want it to, you know, after you've kneaded it and everything, you put it aside and let it rest before you use it again? He was victorious over his work as the uh, redeemer of mankind. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread shows Christ the victor who is sleeping, who is resting in his grave. He's done with one part of his work. He's about to start another part of his work. And he's resting in the meantime. Then first fruits. First fruits, you know, the first fruits are usually of, of trees and everything. It's the juiciest fruit, the best fruit. This is what the Feast of First Fruits was about. It represented Christ coming out of the grave. It says he's the firstborn of the grave. Now, there were other people who came out of the grave before him, right? What about Lazarus? The word first fruit isn't chronological according to time. It means the first fruit means the chief or most important of the fruit. Barack and Michelle Obama are called the first family, but they weren't here before George Washington was. You see, it's a title more than it is a chronological order of things. And so we find that Christ was the first fruit out of the grave. What's it implied? It implies that there would be others who would come out of the grave too at a later time. Notice this also takes in his ascension because now he ascends to heaven. He has a new work to do. And then comes in 15 through 22, it talks about the Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Feast of Pentecost down here on earth, by the way, Pentecost, the word penta, means 50. Like the Pentagon is based on five. Well, Pentecost is 50 days, what? After the Passover. Now, it's 
Jesus, after his resurrection, walked on the earth for 40 days, didn't he? And then he told his disciples, go home and search your souls and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know what? That Holy Spirit was poured out 10 days later. 40 and 10 is 50. He came right on time. The Holy Spirit was right on target. Now, what happened there? It's interesting that the high priests, when they change high priests, one would die and they'd have another one, they usually inaugurated the high priest on Pentecost. You see. And Jesus, who is now done with his work as the Lamb, now begins his role as high priest in the heavenly temple, the heavenly sanctuary. And it's also interesting that as his work goes forward on earth, the church, the priesthood of believers, starts going forward, you see. When they anointed the high priest, they put oil on his head, and it would drip down his beard and drip off his robes. That oil symbolized the Holy Spirit when they were anointing. Isn't it interesting that as they anoint the heavenly high priest, some of that oil, spiritually speaking, drops down and ignites his tongues of fire over his believers. And the church is now inaugurated the priesthood of believers to build up the kingdom of God and intervene for others. So what happens then? Christ is working in the holy place of the, the heavenly sanctuary. Those of you who aren't familiar with the heavenly sanctuary, we'll be touching on that a little bit later and we'll show you the compartments. There's two compartments, the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place is for daily ministration of forgiveness of sins. The second compartment, the high priest only went in once a year. The Jews call it Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But the rest of the time, the priests are in and out of there. And so we find here that Christ ministers in the holy place. Why? He is warning them. What do you do with a trumpet? You blow a trumpet to warn people something's about to happen. And we find the Feast of Trumpets is to warn them to get their lives ready. Why? Because the judgment is coming. The Yom Kippur. The Great Day of Atonement. And so that's the next feast. The Great Day of Atonement is, is when Christ, as our High Priest, moves into the second compartment, the whole, most holy place, there to be the judge. This is the time of the judgment. In Revelation, uh, well, actually, Revelation 1 and 2, it's, I mean, yeah. Is it 1 and 2 or 2 or 3? I can't um, It's 1 and 2, isn't it? It talks about the seven churches. It, when he, it talks about the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is the church of the judgment, the end time church. My friends, that's, the time we're living in, you see. He's getting ready to judge the world and the people, okay? All right, 
Then what happens? The next one to come along is the Feast of Tabernacles. Actually, the Feast of Tabernacles has three applications. Most people only see two in it, but there's really three. Number one, the Jews, when they came out of Egypt, when they were delivered out of Egypt, they wandered around in the wilderness. And they used to build little booths. And they would look up and see the sky. They lived in tents. And the Jews today, remembering that experience, they build little booths today. And they actually go and live for a week in that booth outside. They eat in it and they sleep in it. It's called Sukkot. And the booth is called a sukkah. But here, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. Remembering when they were once slaved and now the Lord led them out and he's going to lead them to the promised land. Now, what's a second application? Second application is that when Christ, when all sin is behind us, Christ delivers us into the happy ever after. He delivers us into eternity. In plain words, you have creation lost, paradise lost, and now you have the new earth, creation again, paradise regained, you see. That's wrapped up in it. Now, some people don't realize that because these feasts go around in a circle, that, you know, you don't all of a sudden start with the Passover. First, the Messiah had to be born, right? You will find the Feast of Tabernacles also carries the connotation of the Incarnation. If you look at John 1, it says, you know, in the beginning was the Word. And Anyway, when you get down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you look at that in the original language, it says that he boothed among us. He sukkot among us. Jesus was probably born, we're sure he was not born in December, okay? But he was probably born sometime in the Feast of Tabernacles. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when because he doesn't, God doesn't want us to make an idol out of the day. But he was probably born during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a week long. He could have been born any time through there. That's why the wise men, I mean the shepherds, were out on the fields still. Okay, so this is wrapped up in it. You have the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resting in the grave. You find him resurrecting, ascending to heaven, becoming the high priest. And here he's moving into the holy place, ministering in our behalf. Then he moves into the atonement, the day of atonement or judgment. And finally, he leads us into the happy ever after. You see the cycle that was followed. Now, the scripture says that these were a schoolmaster. What's a schoolmaster do? Teaches you, right? I assume your third grade teacher taught you something. But once you reached high school, uh, do you still have to go through whatever the you have to go back to your third grade teacher for things. 
No, you've graduated out of that. What happened is that when Jesus came, he completed these, he lived them. They're already his life. And they become no longer mandatory. Let's look at what the scripture says here. Notice the moral law versus the messianic and ceremonial law. The moral law came once a week. The ceremonial laws once a, a year. The, uh, the uh, moral Sabbath, it pointed back to the creator. The ceremonial Sabbaths pointed to the Messiah and his work. The moral one was written in stone. The other was written on parchment. It was also written by the finger of God, whereas the other was by the hand of Moses. You see, that's why it's oftentimes referred to as the law of Moses. Notice that this one that was written on stone is put inside of the Ark of the Covenant, which was a big box that was in the most holy place. They put the Ten Commandments inside of that box. This one, the ceremonial law, if you look in Deuteronomy 31, 26, a lot of people miss that. That law, Moses himself told them to put it on the side of the ark. Not in the box, but off on the side. Why? Because it was temporary. Okay? This one is permanent. That's why it's in stone inside the box. This one was temporary until the Messiah fulfilled it. This one, the moral law, it was a transcript of the character of God. The Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character. The only way you're going to change the commandments is to change the character of God. And he says he doesn't change, right? These, we already saw, they were temporary and they would some of those laws would have to change, like the law of priesthood. Okay, this Ten Commandment laws will be the standard that he uses in the judgment. When you go to court, they judge you by books, right? And if you look in the scriptures, it says that the judgment was set and the books were open. This is the criteria that God is going to be using. This one, uh, the ceremonial law, was not the standard. We find here that number nine, the observance of the weekly Sabbath is still valid. The others are obsolete. We find also that the scriptures refers to this as the law of liberty for our own protection. A fence can be built around your property to keep burglars out but it also keeps you in, right? And if a burglar jumps over the fence, he's transgressing or trespassing, right? So God says, this is to protect you, to keep you in if you obey my commandments. If you jump the fence, you're on the enemy's territory. We need to be careful. And so we see that the ceremonial law needed to be changed. Now, let's go to Colossians 2, 14, 16, and 17. People use this text to try to say that the Ten Commandments are done away with and you don't have to keep them. It's interesting that they want to do away with them all, but they, when you start 
talking with them individually, they want to keep nine of them and kick out the tenth one, which happens to be the Sabbath one, you see. I think most people will tell you that you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't rob, you shouldn't uh, commit murder, and so forth. But look what it says here. What was wiped out? Having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Why nailed to the cross? Because it talked about Christ, and Christ was nailed to the cross. Therefore, the ceremonial days and the ceremonies were nailed to the cross with him, making them obsolete. And you can check Deuteronomy 31, 24, and 26. And you will find there that it refers to that as ordinances that were against us. Okay. Therefore, let no man or no one judge you in food. Now, it's not talking about whether you like chicken or whether or not you like carrots. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the offerings. The food offerings, the drink offerings, or festivals, these are the feast days, or new moons, or the messianic Sabbaths. There were other feast days that they had too. And uh, not just the ones that we mentioned. He says, then in verse 17, for they are a shadow of things to come. Now, the Ten Commandments Sabbath pointed backwards, whereas these others pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. They foreshadowed what was to come. But the substance of these was Christ. You see, this text has been mis, uh, misused many times. John Wesley, some accused him, the great father of the Methodist Church, they accused him of saying, oh, well, you know, the moral law, you don't have to keep it. Well, look what he says. This handwriting of ordinances our Lord did blot out, take away and nail to his cross in Colossians 2.14. But the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments and enforced by the prophets, he did not take away. The moral law stands on an entirely different foundation from the ceremonial ritual law. Every part of this law must remain in force upon the Jews. What's it say? All mankind in all ages, you see. So the moral law of Ten Commandments is still binding. It's the only of the Sabbaths listed. It's the only one that is still binding today. The others are obsolete. What about Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church? Notice what he writes. I wonder exceedingly how it came to be imputed to me that I should reject the law of Ten Commandments. Whosoever abrogates the law, most of necessity, abrogates sin also. He's saying if you get rid of the law, there's no sin. And that's what people want today. If we get rid of the law of God, and I, I, I dare to say as a preacher, I can say this because I, I is one, okay? That many preachers today say, you don't have to keep the law. And then they be cry, oh, why is there so much abortion going on? Why is there 
Why, why are the young people falling away from the church? You see, they've just nailed any standard that they had. And so we find that because they cannot separate between what really was nailed to the cross and what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant, they're leading people down a dark road. Okay, I hope I didn't lose you. Anybody lost? If, if you want a replay of it, see me afterwards. I don't think everybody wants to go through that again. But I hope this helps to clarify in your minds um, the difference. Okay, it's time for our table discussion, and I'll just have to talk in my part again. I want to welcome you back to our sixth session of Unlock Revelation. Ever since the um, 1970s, when uh, the book Roots and the television program Roots came out by Alex Haley, people have been wanting to go back and investigate where they came from and what their roots are. In 1831, Charles Darwin on the Galapagos Islands, even though he was, by the way, he studied to be a clergyman, but Charles Darwin formulated, he didn't originate it, others had taught it before him, but he formulated and popularized the theory of evolution, thus questioning the origins of people. But we know today that we did not just happen to come here out of some little green man walking on the earth, as some say. God had a specific purpose, and as we look at these last days, we find that the dragon, Satan, is going to try to have us question where we came from, what our origins were. And notice what it says here in Revelation 13, 4. It says, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so the devil himself is trying to cause doubting of God and his word. In Revelation 13, 8, it says that in these last days, this will become more and more a point of focus. Why? Because the devil knows that he has but a short time. And notice what it says. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Who? The beast in his image, whom the dragon gives power to. We'll talk about that a little more later. Whose name are not written in the book of life. If a person's name is not in the book of life, they're going to end up worshiping the beast in his image, whether they like it or not. But if we worship the lamb who was slain, he is the same one who was slain from the foundation of the world. For all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve, he's the one that is the one we are to look to. Look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This is a part of what is called the three angels' messages of Revelation. This talks about the end times. Notice it's chapter 14. 
It's, it's moving toward end times. And what is it predicting? It's predicting that there would be a worldwide movement that would take the message to the world. Have you ever noticed that you could be out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, nothing around, maybe an Arab boy walking along, watching his camels or something, but chances are he either has a smartphone or he has a transistor radio or something. He's in touch with the world. My friends, we can get in touch with the world if we really wanted to. And that God's people need to take this with a loud voice to the ends of the earth. Notice in 6 and 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God. The word fear here, here doesn't mean, oh, I'm afraid. That isn't what it means. For the wicked, it should be that kind of fear. But fear God means respect God. My little Irish mother was only uh, this tall. She only came up, her head came up to my chin. I'm sure that I could probably whip her in a fight, but I never tried. Because when she said, you are not going to do something, I didn't do it. I remember one time I was about to do something that I knew I shouldn't have done. And just as I was about to do it, all of a sudden, flashed into my mind, came a picture of my mother, and I heard the words of my ears, would you do this if your mother was here? <laughs> I quickly backed off. Now, it's not because I was afraid of her, it's because I respected her. And I feared to hurt her. And notice what it says, fear God, give glory to him. Why? The hour of judgment, the Yom Kippur, is come. And worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. You know what that is? That's creation. That's creation language. You know where that is found? That exact wording, John plagiarized. He took that exact wording out of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. It says those exact words in it. Worship him that made the heavens, the earth, not all of it, the front part isn't, but who made heaven, earth, and the sea and waters. It's telling us that he's the same God, the same God who created us is the same God who redeems us. He's coming to get us again. The one who is the mighty one, the creator of all things. My friends, God, when he created the Sabbath, Notice, he did many things to it. By the word of the Lord. What is Jesus called? In the beginning was the word. What was in the mind of God, Jesus spoke into existence. Right now, I'm going to do a quick little test with you. I'm thinking of something round. It has numbers that go all the way around it. And it has two little pointy metal things that move. All right? Somebody want to tell me what I am seeing in my mind? A clock. You know what? How did I get that out of my mind into your mind? From my mind, I put it into words, and the word recreated it in your mind. You see? 
He spoke and it came into existence. That thought came into existence in your mind as I spoke the words. And so we find that he is called the word of God. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Do we have a mighty God? We do. Look what it says in Genesis 2, 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested the seventh day from all his work, which he has made. Well, some people would say, well, see, that means that there's a six-day week of creation. No, there's a seven-day. The seventh day is a part of it. What did he do? He did all his work on six days, and then he rested the seventh so that he could enjoy what he made. You know, after you build a house, you get it all built and everything, and then you say, there, I'll walk off from it. No, you stay and enjoy it. This is what God did. Not only that, God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day. And then the following day, he used to commune with them and talk with them and have fellowship with them. Why? Because he loved what he had created. This is the purpose of it. And notice it also says, and God did three things. Number one, it says, and God blessed the seventh day. That means it's a happy day. The word blessed means to be happy. He blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it. We get the word sanctuary from it. Sanctified means to make holy. Because in it, he rested. So he rested, he sanctified, and he blessed from all his works which God created made. Now, I can say, well, I believe in keeping Wednesday as the Sabbath. You can believe that all you want. But the other six days are work days, you see. And if you say, well, I have made Wednesday the Sabbath, well, that means you must be God. But if God's not working on Wednesday, I mean, is resting on Wednesday, he's working. Well, you're keeping your Wednesday. So we find here that because he is God, we rest when he rests, you see. Notice what else. When God created the world, it was perfect. Some people say, well, the Sabbath didn't come along to Mount Sinai. Ah, I think you better look twice. Because it was at creation that the Sabbath was made. And it was made perfect. It was made from evening and then came the morning. 24-hour period. Not just a couple of hours when you go to church. Oh, yeah, but, but the Sabbath was made for the Jews. I got news for you. There weren't any Jews around when Adam was on the earth. You see, the Jews wouldn't come along for centuries afterwards. It says the Sabbath was created for man. That means mankind, not just men. You women still are part of that. That means mankind. And notice the three things which he did on the Sabbath. The only reason we observe a seven-day week, as I mentioned before, is because the Bible says to do so. Because the God of creation 
gave us these Ten Commandments to, to keep us safe, to protect us. When he says, thou shalt not kill, that applies to both Jews and Gentiles. It's not restricted to just one uh, race of people. Notice also what he says about the Sabbath. The reason I'm emphasizing the Sabbath is this is the one that's neglected. Most people know you're not supposed to kill or steal. But most people are not aware of what the Scripture actually says about the Sabbath. And the interesting part is that it will play a part in Revelation as we go on. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, that's where most people stop. But if you stop there, you don't know if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, you see. But he spells it out. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the which day? The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's his Sabbath. He wants us to come to his house. He wants us to come to his Sabbath. He doesn't want to come to ours. He wants us to come to him. And it says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your, the, your stranger who is within your gate. Basically, what that's saying is the whole family should keep it and respect it. And notice what else it says in Exodus twenty eleven. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth. Notice we keep going back to this creation thing. Notice that we go back to creation when we were talking about the moral and the ceremonial laws. This goes back. The others go forward. Do you realize that if people were to keep the biblical Sabbath, there never would have been a theory of evolution? There never would have been communism? Why? Because every week they'd be forced to remember how they got here, and who made them, you see. And so we find that for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Hallowed it means to make it holy or sacred. Look what Ezekiel says. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? A sign. Now, you'll find that in the last days, it'll be talking about the mark of the beast. A mark mark is a sign, isn't it? It's a symbol. It's a seal. Well, God says it's a sign between me and them. That's a mark, a symbol, or a seal. So you got the mark of the beast and the mark of the best, according to this. And a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I'm the one that sanctifies them. Someone has said, well, I'm I'm going to do it my way, and the Lord will just have to accept accept me the way I am. My friends, you're skating on thin ice when you say that. Who are you to tell God what he will and will not accept? God wants to save you from your sin, not in your sin. He wants to help you overcome sin. 
It's on his terms that we have salvation, not our own. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, think not that I have come to destroy the law. Don't forget, the Sabbath is a part of that Ten Commandments. Okay? Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. Now in Isaiah, it says, to the law and to the testimony, speaking of the prophets. If it speaks not according to this word, there's no light in it. So we find that the testimony of the prophets and the law of God go together. They speak to one another. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, the word fulfill means to complete. And as I mentioned before, some say, well, the Lord fulfilled the, uh, the commandments of God, therefore they're done away with. Oh, okay, if you're going to use that, he also says that he fulfilled all righteousness. Does that mean he did away with all righteousness? No. It means he completed all righteousness. And the same thing with those ceremonial laws. He completed them. Notice what else he says in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, remember that's the dot on the I, and, or one tittle, that's the crossbar on a T, will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Notice what it says in Luke 16 about Jesus. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It was customary in those days that if you had a guest preacher or a guest rabbi who came, you would invite them to participate in the service and read from the scripture. And that's what they invited Jesus to do. But notice what day was Jesus following? He was following the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments. And what did he read? He read the text that pertained to himself, that he was the fulfillment of the Messiah and the Messianic hope. This man, speaking of Luke 23, this man went unto Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Who did that? Joseph of Arimathea. You know, he was a wealthy man. He had had a tomb cut out of the, cut out of the side of the rock that he was going to be buried in. But it's very interesting that Jesus was hanging on the cross. Cursed is the man who dies on a tree or a cross. So what would they have done with Jesus when they took him down? They would have taken his body outside of the city and thrown it down in the valley of Hinnom, from which we get the word Gehenna, from which we get the word hell. It's where they used to burn the garbage. So what is the Gehenna fire? It's the garbage dump. That's what they would have done with the body of Jesus. But the scripture said, ah, I will not see him uh, corrupt in the grave. I mean, he, what did he do? He said, I will give him a rich man's tomb. And that's exactly what happened. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he believed Jesus was the Messiah. He goes to Pilate and says, give me the body of Jesus. And he took it down, he wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. 
So it was a new tomb, just as the scripture had said. And look what else it says in Luke 23, 52 through 56. Now, if Jesus had made any change in the law of God, especially if he had made any change in the Sabbath, don't you think the Jews would have been on his back? I mean, if they were after him because he took some of the grain and started to eat it, which they considered to be breaking the Sabbath. See, Jesus wasn't... Jesus came to free the Sabbath from some of the rules that they put on it. The Pharisees had put on some rules that were very restrictive. If you wore a pin in your coat, you were breaking the Sabbath. If you spit on the grass, you were watering the grass. You were breaking the Sabbath, you see. They used to argue about uh, how far away a chicken could be if it laid an egg on the Sabbath, whether you could eat that egg or not. I mean, these were some of the rules that they used to have on this thing. Jesus was freeing the Sabbath from this. He was making it a delight for them. And notice it says that in Luke, now Luke is in the New Testament, and the women who were anointing Jesus' body, they were his followers. They were Christians, right? I want you to observe something that people scoot over and don't think about. And that day that he was crucified was the preparation. Preparation for what? That's the day before the Sabbath. That's Friday, okay? It was Friday, and the Sabbath drew on. It was getting near sunset. Remember, he died at 3 o'clock. Okay, as the Sabbath drew on, and the women also, which came with him from Galilee, they were, they were uh, Jews from up north. They followed after, and they beheld the sepulcher, and how his body was laid. They looked in, they saw how he was in there, and like the Egyptians, you know, they would prepare the body uh, for burial. They didn't necessarily mummify it, but somewhat like that. Today we embalm people, but in those days, they used to uh, use spices and wrap them. Notice what it says here. And they returned and prepared the spices and the ointments But did they go up and anoint the body? You see, the Jews usually buried a person the same day they died. Because, don't forget, the weather over there is a little bit on the warm side. And the body begins to stink real fast, right, and bloat. But notice that they, what did they do? They prepared the spices, but they didn't go up right away. It says... And they rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. What's the only commandment mentioned in the scripture? It's the one that's in the box, that's in the ark, that's written in stone. So they kept the seventh day Sabbath. These were Christian women. If Jesus had changed anything, he would have told them. And then it says in Luke 23, 52 and 56... Now, upon the first day of the week, this is after the Sabbath has passed, the first day of the week would be Sunday, right? Now, when does Sunday begin? Saturday night, doesn't it? It begins Saturday night. And it says, very early in the morning, probably before the sun came up. Why? Because up around that grave, 
there were Roman guards, and this isn't a place for women to be at night. So they, they wait till the sun starts to come up, and then they head up there. They came unto the sepulcher bringing spices, which they had prepared, thinking they were going to anoint his body, and certain others with them. And when they get up there, they find that he's already resurrected. He very likely came out of the grave before sunrise. Notice, Jesus died on the preparation day. We call that Good Friday. He rose on the first day of the week, which is traditionally called Easter. By the way, you'll find that Easter, the word Easter, is mentioned in the King James Bible. But who was observing it? It was the heathen Romans who were observing Easter because it has a a pagan origin. It, It has transcended over to be called Easter, but it was the first day. They didn't name the days. In the Bible, the days aren't called Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Those are after planets and gods, you see. They just said, uh, there's the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath is first day, then second day, third day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. When you get to the sixth day, they call that preparation for the Sabbath. That's why they call it the preparation day. And so, which day is the Sabbath? It's the day between when he died and when he rose. And what was he doing? He was resting on the Sabbath, you see. So we keep that cycle today, even when Easter rolls around, you see. And people say, well, you can't. The, the uh, calendar's been changed so, much, so many times. You don't know which day is really the Sabbath anymore. Well, just go to Easter. You'll find out once a, once a year. You can calculate it for yourself. Secondly, if the calendar has been changed so much that you don't know which day is the seventh day, then you know what? You don't know which day is the first day either. So you don't know what day Sunday is, if that's the case. And interestingly enough, that's wrong. The Sabbath has always remained the same. And the cycle, the numbers were changed when the calendars were changed, but not the weekly cycle. Anyway, that's another thing. All right, what is the definition of Sabbath? Sabbath, the day of the week, Saturday as the day of rest and observance. It's interesting that in many languages, not just Spanish, but here's Spanish. Anybody Spanish? Anybody know Spanish? Okay, what is Saturday called? Sabado. It carries over. In many languages, in Russian, Sabota, and many other languages, it's still called that. We find that The other days were named after um, gods or astronomical bodies, but that one wasn't. Even today, all you have to do is look at your calendar, start counting, and you'll find that your calendar will tell you the seventh day is Saturday. Why? This is the one that is recorded. This is the one placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because it was written in stone by the finger of God. Not by Moses' hand, but by the finger of God. 
Notice the Apostle Paul. Well, did he change anything? It says in 17.2 of the book of Acts, and Paul, as his manner was, what's that mean? It means as his custom was. Okay? As his manner was, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He used to go, Paul made it a point. Remember the Scripture says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. What he, what he did was, he followed that principle. He would first go and try to explain to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah of the Scriptures and the prophecies. And then if he got tossed out of there, then he'd go and he would preach to the Gentiles and tell them the same thing. Now, it just so happens in 1613, it says, And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there. Now, there's a difference between a city and a town in the Bible. It's a city if it has a synagogue. If it doesn't have a synagogue, it's a town. And because the Jews were not too receptive of Paul, because don't forget, Paul was a turncoat as far as they were concerned. He was a Benedict Arnold. He had been in the Sanhedrin persecuting Christians, and now he's one of them. And so they weren't going to receive him too well. And so we find that many of the Christians who had been kicked out of the synagogue used to go down and just, you know sit by the water side, and that's where they would have prayer and could even have prayer meetings there, whatever. And Paul went and preached to them. Notice what it says in Acts 13.42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, notice the Gentiles begged these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. What is this saying? It's saying that Paul preached to the Jews. Uh, the uh, Gentiles heard about it. They said, hey, what he's saying makes sense. And they go to him and they say, hey, next Sabbath, will you preach to us too? They both, the Jews and Gentiles, both used to worship in the synagogue, but at different times. Some churches, even today, will have a regular service and then they'll have a Spanish service. Or they'll have another group come in. And the Jews and the Gentiles didn't want to mix. And so what would happen? He went and he preached to the Jews first. And the Gentiles said, hey, preach to us too. But notice that the Gentiles were in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Why? Because that's the day they kept. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Notice he, he was such a dynamic preacher that the whole town showed up for the service the next time. And then in 1344, notice what it says in Matthew 24, 19, and 20. Well, some say that, well, during the time of the apostles, it was changed and everything. I have quotations from almost every denomination you can think of. And... Uh, you saw what Martin Luther and what Wesley said, but I have quotations from various denominations who will tell you that the Sabbath is still Saturday. It's no other day of the week. And uh, 
Notice what it says here. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And the prayer and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath day. It's interesting to notice that this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 A.D. Now, Jesus died on the cross in 30 A.D., right? 30, 31, half days. I mean, half years. All right, he died on the cross in the 30s. Here we are now in the 70s. You know, that's about 40 years difference, isn't it? And here he's looking ahead, telling about the, the temple being destroyed. And he says, you folks who live in Jerusalem, you better be praying that it doesn't come in the winter and it doesn't come on the Sabbath. Why? It does get cold in Jerusalem in the winter time. It gets rainy, too. And this would be very, if you're feeling miserable, are you going to feel in much of a mood for keeping the Sabbath? I don't think so. If you're running for your life, are you going to be thinking about resting for the Sabbath? No. He said, you be praying it doesn't come in the winter, be praying that it doesn't come on the Sabbath. You know what? It just so happens that when Jerusalem fell, it was not in the winter, and it was not on the Sabbath. And the, those who were looking for him escaped out of Jerusalem, and not a one of the Christians was slain. But yet there were crosses going up all over, hanging the unbelieving Jews. We talked before about the tabernacle in the wilderness. This part is called the holy place. This part is the most holy place. This is where the forgiveness of sins on a daily basis is given, every day of the, of the year in the Old Testament. This, the high priest only answered once a year. That was on the Yom Kippur. This was for corporate forgiveness. It was corporate forgiveness for the whole people, you see. Individual forgiveness, corporate forgiveness. They even used different types of animals in this. And here symbolizes the judgment at the end of the world. The Jesus' blood and, uh, and sacrifice was burned here on the burnt offering. The washing before the priest went in. Even today, are we not told that the blood of Christ we are to be washed in it? Are we not to be washed through the waters of baptism to be made clean? The priests, before they could go in there, had to wash so that they didn't defile the temple. This is the throne of the Father and the Son sitting together. Across from there is the light constantly burning that's fed by the oil, symbolizing the Holy Spirit that puts the light and the zeal in our Christian experience. And so we find that this is uh, symbolic of the things that uh, Jesus came to do. Look what it says in Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. For the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord. So shall your seed and your name remain. 
God does not forget and will not forget those who do not forget him. Notice what else it says. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me. Notice that word worship. That's what Satan wants. That's why he keeps throwing up counterfeits in our way. But this is what he wants us to do is worship him. And notice that the Sabbath, this is speaking of in the new earth. Every, every week from one Sabbath to another, we will come into that holy city and worship him. During the week, you'll have a country home. But on Sabbath, you'll go into the holy city where it's prepared for you. Yes, my friends, the God of creation is also the God of redemption. He's the one who is consistent. He's the one who remains like the mountains. His will remains like the mountains. And he is the God who created and redeemed us. When Jesus died on the cross, my friends, he died for each of us, for you and for me. Notice his arms are spread wide. That's how much he loves us. He's willing to reach out and accept us. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Serve me because you love me, not because you have to. Remember, an apple tree doesn't bear apples to prove it's an apple tree. It bears apple because it can't do anything else. Because it is an apple tree. And if you are in Christ, you will be fruitful for him. By their fruit, you shall know them. And you will know those who are sincere Christians. And he's calling us to keep his commandments. He's calling us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. This is why the Lord came to this earth to make all things new, to restore all things. How many of you would like to be ready for the coming of the Lord and want to be ready by serving him daily? Are you willing to make that kind of a commitment to him and to be ready to see him when he comes? You know, on the table, there's another card And there's just four questions on it. And you don't have to fill this out if you don't want to, but I'd like to invite you to. Notice what it says here. It says, the first question, it says, I love Jesus and I want to keep his commandments according to John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If that's your desire, check it. Notice the second one. I choose to worship him who made heaven and earth by keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. Maybe you've never kept it before. I invite you to do so. Number three, I would like more information on the topic of the Bible Sabbath. Check that if you wish. And then the fourth one, I have questions regarding the Sabbath. You may say, hey, you know, this is new to me. I've never heard this before. I got some questions. Write them right on the back of the, the card. And we will try to explain them to you. Maybe during our question time or even on an individual basis if you'd like. But I hope you see the rationale and the reasoning that is behind this and why the scripture points us to this day above all others.
until we meet again, which we will do across the courtyard. You can find that building over there. Next time we meet at the curling center. And I hope you all can make it. Same time, same station. No, different station. Same time, 7.15. Until then, may the Lord bless you. Let's have prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for all your mercies to us. We thank you that you are the God who never changes. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you and to praise you and live in a way that will honor you, that others may see Christ in us, that we will be among those who are a part of those who say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, as it tells us in Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.